Well, it's good to be with you all. Every Sunday is good, but the Sundays were, this Sunday in particular, where I have the privilege and joy to just share the word with you and the ways that the, the Lord has been working me, showing me what he desires of, of us as his church. But I hope that you all are blessed and convicted and encouraged this morning as well. But uh, before I begin, I'll, uh, I need some help from the Lord. So let me pray one more time for us. Father God, we come before you acknowledging that you are God and your word is true. I pray that you would help each of us to come before your word and to have ears to hear, to hear your word, and in such a way, not that we would just be able to point fingers, but in a way where we ourselves and our lives and our hearts are transformed and changed. So thank you so much, Lord, for the time that we have, for your word, the truth, and that we can trust in it. We thank you, in Christ's name, amen. Well, within the larger evangelical church, it seems that we can't go for too long without hearing about some scandal relating to immorality. It seems that every year some big story comes out in the national media or in Christianity Today where it comes to light that some church leader has been unfaithful and has to step down from his ministry, disqualified. Or maybe some news breaks that some big church had known about some instance of marital infidelity and domestic abuse for years, and yet it was dismissed, downplayed, or even actively covered up. It's reached a point where hearing about moral failure in the church, particularly pertaining to the issue of impurity and unfaithfulness, while it does remain disappointing and discouraging, sometimes it's not even surprising anymore. Brothers and sisters, it should not be like this. We should not be so desensitized to moral failure in the church that it no longer shocks or surprises us. Now, I don't bring these things up just so that we can pull up the news stories and the blog posts and we can stoke our own appetite for controversy or so that we can point fingers and just reinforce our own self-righteousness. But I bring these things up as a sober warning to our church. This summer, we've been covering the topic of church unity. And make no mistake, how we deal with immorality in the church has everything to do with our unity as a church body. We have a responsibility to guard the unity of the church in how we deal with sin. And as we'll see in our text for today, Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, not to persuade the Corinthians to condemn this moral behavior in other churches, but to admonish them for their failure to do so in their own church. And I believe that is the principle, the authorial intent for us today at LBCSJ. The Lord has brought this text before us, not so that we would better know what to condemn in other churches or on social media or in response to the latest Christianity Today article, but where we may need to repent as a church and what we need to practice in our own midst. So if I may, I'd like to take a few moments to recap the context of where we are in the scriptures this morning. Before Pastor Henry filled the pulpit for us last week, Ted opened up our summer series on unity in the church by taking us through the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. Now, the church in Corinth was a church in the midst of a very wealthy, very worldly, and also a very immoral and debaucherous culture. The city had become infamous for its dissolute ways, 
so much so that the word Corinthian had become synonymous with excess and moral, moral loose living. If I were to draw a parallel to a city that we know today, Las Vegas comes to mind, known more for its sinfulness than for really anything else. This immorality that characterized the entire city of Corinth had seeped into the church and had even become normalized. Every church will in some ways struggle with being a product of its culture, and the Corinthian church was no different. But instead of humbling themselves before the word of Christ, separating themselves from the behavior that did not represent their gospel identity, they continued in their pride. So a few weeks ago, Ted spoke about how some in the Corinthian church had started aligning themselves into factions following individual teachers like Paul or Cephas or Apollos. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, this pride showed up in a sort of spiritual elitism and showing off of spiritual gifts that were perceived to be more valuable than other ones while looking down at the more humble gifts. And what about Paul? Where is Paul in all of this? Paul had helped to establish the church in Corinth, but he was no longer there. In his absence, it seemed that some things had gotten out of hand, and he continued to minister to them, shepherding them through sending letters. 1 Corinthians, contrary to what the name of this epistle would have us believe, is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Paul had sent at least one letter before, correcting some of the behavior that was going on in Corinth, but it appears that one letter was not enough, and more correction was needed, and he wrote another letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, and what we're looking at today. So to get to today's passage in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had already confronted one aspect of division in the church, where people would latch on to different teachers, being enamored by their wisdom or their rhetorical ability, rather than being humbled and changed by the word of God. This division, as we learn, is a symptom of a church that has not prioritized the word of Christ. Rather, pride in self and the abilities of men, whether it be pride in preaching ability or the pride in the exercise of spiritual gifts, became major sources of division in the church. And now, in chapter 5, Paul seemingly changes topic to this issue of immorality and a specific incident of immorality in the church. But when we further examine this, we actually haven't switched topics at all. We're simply looking at another outworking of pride and division within the church. The unity that Christ calls the church to pursue is a unity grounded in the holiness of God. And if that holiness is compromised by immorality in our midst, then the basis of our unity is also compromised. So let's turn there. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. I'll read this for us. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now in this passage, we see very different responses to immorality in the church. One comes from a heart that prioritizes the purity and unity of the church body, and the other is one that stems from pride. For those who are following along, we'll start there. Responses and rebukes to immorality in the church. Responses and rebukes to immorality in the church. And the very first response we'll look at is Paul's concern for the Corinthian church. The kind of immorality that was going on in the Corinthian church was pretty blatant. There's not much to actually debate or split hairs about here, and we won't get too descriptive on the actual sin. All we need to know that this behavior is explicitly condemned in Scripture. It's not a gray area we're talking about. Paul's response was shock. He uses the word actually as if he had a hard time believing that such a thing could actually be happening in the household of God. And not only that, we're talking about a sin that is so reprehensible that even the tainted consciences of those without God, pagans who have openly rejected God's law, even they do not tolerate this kind of behavior. How morally compromised must the Corinthian church have been that they would accept something that even a pagan culture would condemn? Note that Paul does not tiptoe around the subject but he addresses it head on. Paul's previous letter had already alluded to immorality in the church, so the sin was likely already public knowledge amongst the church, but if it wasn't, it was now. By the time that this letter of 1 Corinthians was received and read, everyone in the church would know who Paul is talking about. So how's that for confidentiality? Do you think Paul cares more about purity or about confidentiality in the church. Paul has no qualms about airing out someone's dirty laundry here because there is no room to tiptoe around it when the purity and unity of the church is at stake. Paul addresses this directly because the matter is urgent. No sugarcoating it here. But as we read on, we get the sense that there's something that Paul is even more concerned about. Yes, he's concerned about the sin of the man described here, He's concerned about the immorality, but what is even more concerning is the church's response, or lack thereof. What was their response? Was it outrage? Grief? Mourning? With weightiness or, or seriousness? No. The Corinthian church responded to the sin that not even the pagans tolerate with arrogance. And that is the next response we see in this passage, is the conceit of the Corinthian church. Not even apathy or indifference, arrogance. Let's consider for a moment just the layers of evil that we're dealing with here. 
not only is there, you know, immorality in the church, later one, the nature of the sin was such that even those without God with corrupted consciences would not allow it. That's layer two. And beyond that, they, pers- they allowed this immorality to persist without acting upon it. And the tense used here indicates the sin is still going on. Layer three, and then I don't have enough hands here. But beyond that, not only did they not act, they were proud. Layer four. That is quite the evil layer cake, if I must say so. Perhaps the Corinthian church was proud to call themselves a morally progressive church and a tolerant church in tune with the culture. They were hip with the times. Or perhaps it was arrogance in defending their inaction. It doesn't matter. The root of either response is pride. We talked about this in, an earl- in earlier weeks, how pride is at the root of division amongst the body of Christ. And now we see how pride compromises the purity and the holiness of the church. Paul calls them out directly, you are arrogant. As disappointed as Paul is in the hearing about immorality in the church, you can sense that he is actually more upset about the way the Corinthian church responded to this sin in their midst. As much as it grieves us when someone we love is sick, how much more would we be outraged if their doctor, the one who is charged with caring for their health, was indifferent and refused to address their sickness, all the while boasting about how great of a doctor he is. Pride is at the root of disunity in the church. Philippians 2, 1 through 5 speaks about the connection between humility and Christ-like unity. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if humility is the prerequisite to Christ-like unity in the church, pride is the barrier to that unity. Where there is pride, disunity will inevitably follow. Paul goes on to recommend the right response to immorality. This is the third response we see. It's Paul's command to the Corinthian church. So what are Paul's commands? Well, at the end, end of verse 2, he says they ought to mourn. So this is quite the opposite of pride. The Corinthian church ought to rather mourn. Instead of puffing themselves up, the situation should bring them low. It is a grievous thing for there to be sin and immorality in the church. And when it is there, it's not an occasion for pride in holding ourselves high, but one of grief because a brother is in sin and the glory of God is obscured. So firstly, they ought to mourn. Next, he calls them to seek unity under the lordship of Christ. We see that in verses 3 to 4, and uh, actually let's read that together. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as at present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. So while the world might teach that the path to unity is compromise, to lower our standards and find some acceptable middle ground, notice that's not 
Paul's approach to unity in the church. Paul's response is not to meet them halfway and compromise on the issue here. You know, how about you just keep this under wraps and then maybe just show a little bit of outward remorse and we'll just call it even. No, lowering Christ's standards of holiness and finding common middle ground with the world is not the path to Christ's unity. Paul says that even if I am not physically present with you, I still seek unity with you. He says he is present in spirit. Their unity is not based on a physical proximity, but based on a common spirit, a spirit that is informed and controlled by the word and the power of Christ. So when we say that we are united as a church, we are not united in a common demographic or a geographic location or common hobbies or a common political affiliation. We are united in the common confession that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord and our commitment is to walk in his ways. Our fellowship and unity is in Christ and his truth and his holiness, and anyone who departs from Christ, his word and his holiness, is not walking in unity with us. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this being in fellowship with one another, being united with one another, is actually marked by our walking together in the light. Why? Because God is light and there is no darkness in him. Unity in the church is impossible without Christ at the center. If you want to tune a hundred different pianos to sound the same, you can't tune them all to one another. You'll just end up with chaos and dissonance. So how do you tune 100 pianos to sound the same? You get the same tuning fork. Then you tune all the pianos to the one tuning fork. Our tuning fork is our confession of Jesus Christ and everything that comes along with him, his word, his holiness, his lordship, our unity is found there. Paul is speaking from his apostolic authority here, but this authority comes from the same place as our unity and our fellowship. It comes from Christ's lordship, his standards. Paul doesn't say, let me come be united with you, Corinthian church, who boasts about immorality. He says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, because that is what Christ says. I am standing with Christ in his word, what Christ approves, what Christ condemns. Will you come and be united with me and the one whom we all confess as Lord? There is an urgency that Paul communicates here. He doesn't say, wait for me to come back there and be with you all in person. He says, I'm already there now where Christ stands on this issue. Now the church needs to come together and move forward. If multiple people who confess Christ's lordship come together and affirm or deny that someone's life is not consistent with their profession of who Christ is, not only is Paul present with them and in agreement with them, Christ is too. It's the entire church's responsibility to do this. The text says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, indicating to us that the church as a whole is involved in this work. The elders will lead the way and shepherd the rest of the church in this, but make no mistake, 
This is not just an action that the elders take behind closed doors, but it is brought before the whole church who are in agreement with Christ and what he has set forth in his word. So although Paul doesn't use the word unity in this passage, I hope you can see this is absolutely 100% about unity. Paul is there. Christ is there. Where are you? Will you be present with him in the same spirit? After having come together with Paul in spirit and with one another under the unity of Christ's lordship, what are they to do? Very simply, the end of verse 2, remove this man from among them. This is what's called excommunication, removing someone from the communion of believers. Paul further elaborates in verse 5, he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this language here should sound very familiar. For any church that practices church discipline, these concepts should ring a bell. In Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the same principle we see in 1 Corinthians 5. Come together in the name of the Lord and in the agreement that you have in Christ and his authority will be there too. So Church of God, we're not just a collection of people with common interests. We're a collection of people who all have a common confession and a common responsibility to call to repentance anyone who is not walking with Christ. If they persist, we have a responsibility to remove them and no longer regard them as a part of the church. If the church is the body of Christ, then the process of church discipline is the immune response. When you get sick and your immune system kicks in, it's not a pleasant experience. But in the end, it is a good and healthy thing for your body to have a functioning immune system. And though it does not feel good, it is a good and healthy thing for a church to be faithful in church discipline. This is the proper response to immorality in the church, the assembly of the church to affirm or reject someone's profession before the Lord. So let's go back to this phrase here, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That is quite the extreme statement. But does this fit your paradigm of what church should be? Or does this not sit well with you? We can be honest here. If this statement makes us feel uncomfortable, we can acknowledge that. But then what do we do with this text and this instruction that we have? If it makes us uncomfortable, are we allowed to just not do it? Can we pretend that it's not there? Now, many of us have grown up in a culture and been a part of a church where, where it prioritizes tolerance 
and acceptance above all else. The church is supposed to be a place where sinners are supposed to be able to go with no judgment, right? I thought the church was supposed to bring people to Christ, not deliver them to Satan. That seems to be the opposite. So let's dig into this a little bit. What does it mean to deliver someone to Satan? Now, if membership is affirming that someone belongs to Christ and belongs within the fellowship of people whose lives are ruled by Christ, then discipline is stating that someone isn't walking according to Christ's lordship and belongs among those whose lives are ruled by something else. And if someone isn't walking according to Christ's lordship, then who holds the reins over their life? Themselves, yes, but actually the entire system of the world and sinful nature, that's considered to be the domain and sphere of Satan's influence and Satan's rule. In fact, scripture will confirm that we all, every one of us here, once were part of Satan's rule. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, who do you think that's talking about? That's talking about Satan himself. The one who rules over all that influences and controls those who do not submit to Jesus. According to the picture that scriptures paint for us, there are only two spheres or two domains. The domain that is under Christ's rule and the domain that is under Satan's rule. Handing someone over to Satan then is removing them from the church, the domain of those who submit to Christ, and then regarding them as outside the church, the in the other domain, where Christ's lordship is rejected and ruled by the prince of the power of the air, or Satan himself. This man in the Corinthian church, and not only him, anyone who persists in sin and immorality without repentance is to be put out of the church and regarded as someone outside of the household of faith, not united with the rest of the church. Now, to our minds, this might seem harsh and punitive, like punishment for a wrong done. But if we read just a little bit further on, we see that the purpose and the hope here is redemptive. The text continues, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the, direct, the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is actually the most loving thing that we can do for someone who is persisting in sin, to not mislead them and treat them as if nothing is wrong, but to hold up the mirror of Christ's word and show them you need Christ because you're acting as if you don't know him. By handing someone over to Satan, putting them out of the church, we no longer provide the illusion that they can be counted amongst the redeemed. This will ideally produce a godly sorrow and repentance, a, a turning away from their sin and immorality in faith. When Paul says destruction of the flesh, it is entirely possible that he means that their physical body will experience the negative effects of their sin. 
physical ailment has been described in the New Testament as a consequence for disobedience. So that is certainly a, a possibility here. But it's also likely that Paul is referring to the flesh in a spiritual sense too, meaning whatever is opposed to the Spirit of God in this person's life, meaning that the sin and the pride and the self-righteousness that rules over them instead of Christ must be done away with. Their flesh, not submitting their life to Christ, has to be broken down. Their pride must be destroyed. They must be humbled and have no confidence in the flesh, that they may rest their entire hope in the only one who can truly save them, in Christ Jesus. So if someone is genuinely saved, disciplining them won't cause them to lose their salvation. But God will use the faithfulness of the church that removes him to bring a genuinely saved person to repentance. Same language is used in 1 Timothy 1, 19-20. It says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The purpose of handing over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan, these two false teachers, was that they would learn not to blaspheme. They were disciplined in the hope that their behavior would be corrected, and it would be a means of grace to spur them on to repentance, just as discipline from parents is a means of grace and love for a parent to guide their child away from the path of foolishness and in the path of wisdom. So the hope is that being put out of the church would spur someone on to assess what their standing before the Lord is, that they would no longer be fooled, that just because they associate with the church, they hang out with church people, they live with the church people, their sins are forgiven. The hope is that they would be broken and turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And in the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns to judge all, they will be saved. Delivering someone to Satan is not condemning them to hell. It's actually giving them the opportunity to repent. The gospel is not good news because your sin is tolerated. The gospel is good news because your sin is not tolerated, and yet God provides a way. Well, let's move on to our second point in your outlines today. That was all the first point. The second point in your outlines today, reasons to remove immorality from the church. Reasons to remove immorality from the church, and we see this in verses 6 through 8. It says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The first reason we see to remove immorality from the body is to preserve the purity of the body of Christ. Paul says that a little leaven, noun, Leavens, verb, the whole lump. So what does bread making have to do with church discipline and immorality within the church? Well, not too long ago, bread making would have been a completely foreign concept to me. But as I'm sure you all remember, when the world shut down, all outside activities, many people picked up indoor hobbies instead. One particular indoor hobby that exploded in popularity was bread making. And in particular, 
sourdough bread making. Now, one fateful Sunday, Pastor Mark came to church with a surprise for me and Joanna. In addition to his bag with his Bible and sermon notes, he brought a cup of a strange, gooey, and smelly substance, which he gifted to us. It's not something that you expect your pastor to give you on a Sunday. But it was a bit of sourdough starter. Now, over the next few months, Joanne and I got to experience firsthand how to make sourdough bread. Many of you already know, but sourdough bread is pretty much just water and flour. But if you just mix water and flour together and stick it in the oven, you will not get that signature airy texture or the tangy taste of sourdough. To get that result, you need to incorporate some sourdough starter, which is a live fermented culture of flour and water. If you just add a little bit of starter to a whole lump of dough and give it a little bit of time, it will completely take over that lump of dough and transform it so that something much larger than its original size and also much tastier. Now that little bit of starter, the leaven in this case, changes the entire lump of dough. In 1 Corinthians, this concept is used in the negative sense. The lump of dough that is the church the little bit of leaven of an unrepentant, immoral person will influence and spread throughout the entire lump of dough. At that point, you can no longer just cut the leaven out of the dough after it has incorporated itself throughout the whole thing. If you do not remove from the fellowship of the church anyone who refuses to repent, the entire church will have the taste of immorality. Just like the entire loaf of bread tastes like sourdough, not just the part that contained the original starter. We may try to look the other way for a while, but if it's undealt with, it affects more than just the people who are directly involved and will compromise the holiness and the unity of the entire body. If we ignore our collective responsibility to deal with the leaven before it is too late, we are actually complicit in the spread of immorality within the church. So if you think that the sin of someone else in the church has nothing to do with you, you are wrong. For the Corinthians, here they were going about their church life, boasting about which teacher they followed, showing off their spiritual gifts, and yet there was someone in their midst continuing in their sin. Their leaven was corrupting the whole church. And for us, Lighthouse Bible Church, it doesn't matter how much Bible you know, how involved you are with serving, how encouraging you are to one another, or how active in evangelism you are. In the household of God, when it comes to someone else's sin, you can never say, that's not my problem. Their leaven affects the lump that you are a part of. The second reason to remove immorality from the church is that it protects the testimony of the church. Verse 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Now, being a lump is probably not on your list of goals when you came to church this morning, not on your bucket list. But in this case, being a lump, specifically a new lump, is a good thing. Might I remind us of what Ephesians 2 told us? We were dead in our trespasses. We all have old leaven. Our way of life before we were saved, the things we desired, the things that we lived for, sin was our master, and the passions of our flesh, that was all we knew. But through Christ, we were redeemed, and the process of sanctification, of growing in Christ, 
of removing the old leaven and putting off our former manner of life and then walking in accordance with what Christ declared us to be instead clean. In the macro context of the church, it works the same way. We, the church, are to cleanse out or remove the old leaven, the immorality from the church, so that we can become more like Christ, who has declared us as his church to be his spotless bride. Or to use the words of this passage, it says, you really are unleavened. What a wonderful and amazing truth that is. You really are unleavened. Before God, you are unleavened. You are sinless. That is your reality by virtue of the work of Christ, our Passover lamb, on the cross. Now, we talk about indicatives and imperatives when we study the scripture. Well, this is your gospel indicative, who you are. You are really unleavened. Now, as unleavened people, set apart holy people, you are called to cleanse out the old leaven. This is your gospel imperative to become in practice as the visible church on earth what God has already declared us to be sinless by the blood of Christ so that what the world sees is consistent with what Christ has done. Removing immorality from the church protects our testimony by providing a picture of the gospel's transforming work in the lives of sinners, showing us that Christ is mighty to save. The third reason to remove immorality from the church is to prioritize the worship of Christ. You see, this concept of unleavened bread, it's not just a fun illustration, but actually a deeply meaningful and symbolic concept for the people of God. It would remind them of the Passover celebration. When Israel was escaping Egypt, they had the first Passover meal, or a lamb was sacrificed and its blood smeared along the doorposts of the people of God that they would be saved from the judgment of God over Egypt. Part of this Passover tradition was to eat unleavened bread, bread that did not have time to rise because the people of God needed to leave quickly and swiftly. Paul brings us back to this celebration of Passover and specifically the celebration of Christ, our Passover lamb. And we celebrate Christ not with the sin of malice and evil, but we celebrate Christ with unleavened lives, lives of sincerity and truth. Our worship of Christ is influenced by whether we indulge in the leavened bread of sin and immorality in our midst, or whether we worship in the purity and sincerity of unleavened bread. What we're saying is that our worship, our celebration of Christ, even what we do this morning, is compromised if we allow sin and immorality to persist within the church. It's like celebrating Passover with leavened or risen bread. That may not carry a whole lot of weight or significance to us who don't celebrate these traditions, but for those familiar with celebrating Passover, the eating of unleavened bread is a symbol of their freedom and their set-apartness from Egypt. In fact, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you were supposed to get rid of all the leaven in your whole house. Not just keep it out of your bread, but get it out of your house. To celebrate with leavened bread would be a mockery of what you claim to celebrate. And to worship God with immorality in our midst would be a mockery of who we claim to be worshiping. Unleavened bread is a distinguishing mark of the people of God. It symbolizes the purity and holiness and the set-apartness of God's people. 
and as the church, holiness and set-apartness from the world and Christ-likeness. That should be our distinguishing mark. And that brings us to our, our last point for this morning, a reminder of our responsibility within the church a reminder of our responsibility within the church, verses 9 through 13. We'll read that together. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So first, we see the clarification of Paul's previous letter. A clarification of Paul's previous letter. As we mentioned, this is not the first time Paul had written to the church in Corinth, he references a previous letter in which he warned them not to associate with immoral people. But then he offers a clarification here, which highlights our responsibility as a church. God has given us the responsibility to maintain the purity of his church by being careful about who we associate with. Protecting the fellowship means not bringing immorality into the fellowship or letting it continue if it comes to our attention within the church. You see, when Paul directed the Corinthians to not associate with immoral people or greedy swindlers and idolaters, he did not mean those who are outside the church. The fact that we live and exist as a light amidst a dark world necessarily means that we will be in the world. You can't escape that, nor does God call us to escape and avoid all interaction with those outside the church. Otherwise, how would we evangelize the lost? But then Paul gives us the charge of his current letter. The charge of Paul's current letter. He says, But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So what Paul is saying is that we should not associate with the immoral person who is in the church. The one who bears the name of brother. Those who profess to be a Christian, present as a Christian, claim to be a Christian, but are guilty of immorality, greed, idolatry, drunkenness, and refuse to turn away from that. Paul tells us the extent to how we are to disassociate. As long as they continue to profess Christ and continue in their sinful behavior, we are not even to eat with such a one. This is what the text gives us. What this means is that we can't proceed as if things were just business as usual. They cannot be regarded the same way as if they remained a brother in Christ. In that time, breaking bread with someone in the context of the church implied you have a fellowship with that person, a unity with that person. That's why Peter was so afraid of eating with Gentile Christians when Jewish Christians were around. Now Paul rebuked him for that, but it was because Peter understood that eating with someone, it implicitly communicated a unity with them and a fellowship with them. Paul ends this section by reminding us of our call to judge or evaluate those within the church. You see, the intent of Paul's instruction here is not that we would stand in judgment over the world 
outside the church. That's God's job. Verse 13, God judges those outside. He will bring them to justice. Our job as the church in this age is to judge or evaluate those within the church. To affirm or to not affirm someone's profession is true. To hold one another accountable to walking according to Christ's ways and thus preserving the purity and unity of the church. That's our responsibility. Now to clarify, scriptures do talk about believers judging the world and even judging angels one day, but that day is not today. Our responsibility as the church of God, the assembly of those who are called by him to confess him as Lord, is to hold each other accountable within the church. And this makes sense, doesn't it? You can't hold an unbeliever accountable to follow Christ if he does not have the gospel. He is dead in his trespasses. He has no means by which to even start obeying. He needs the gospel first before he can be held accountable to living a gospel life. God will hold him accountable to the law, but our responsibility is to bring the message of salvation to him. Those in the church, since they profess Christ, we can and should hold each other accountable to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And if someone isn't, we pursue them and call them to repent. But if they refuse, we can't force them to obey, but we can no longer vouch for them as someone who bears the name of Christ. Now, what about judge not, lest ye be judged? In my head, I always go to a different version for that. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Matthew 7, 1, probably the, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. How can we be called to judge those inside the church while also being called not to judge? Matthew 7, 1 is a call not to judge in a self-righteous or hypocritical manner. The standards by which you are to judge others is the same standard by which you will be held accountable. So the warning in Matthew 7, 1 isn't about refraining from all judgment or all discernment because we need to judge or discern in order to be faithful in holding one another accountable. But it is about recognizing that you are not the ultimate judge. God is, and you are subject yourself to those same standards. And back to 1 Corinthians 5. Apparently, the Corinthian church may have misunderstood Paul's exhortation, and they might have begun to denounce or judge what they were seeing in the culture, while at the exact same time turning the other way when seeing it amongst themselves. Isn't that such an accurate description of pride? Having a full 2020 vision when seeing the sin of others, but being completely blind when those same things are present in ourselves? Their pride was what led them to misinterpret Paul's previous instruction to them. Instead of looking at themselves and the sin within, their pride focused on how they could denounce and stand in judgment over the sin outside the church. So for us, Lighthouse Bible Church, let us not fall into the same trap of pride, pointing our fingers at the culture around us and how bad it is, denouncing things like LBGTQ+, corruption in government, or the latest scandal, whatever that might be, while at the same time looking the other way when sin shows up under our own roof. The church is not to be cut off from the world. We are to be in the world, but distinct from it, shining like lights in the darkness, so that God's elect, who are still out in the darkness, would respond to that light and join the fellowship of light. 
if the light of the church is compromised, then how will it be distinct from the world? How will it call God's people home? Now, the name of our church is Lighthouse Bible Church. A lighthouse, its sole purpose is to be bright. Its whole reason for existence is so that it can shine as brightly as possible so that those who are outside in the darkness would clearly see it no matter how far out in the darkness they are. Lives depend on the brightness of a lighthouse. So there is no excuse then to not fix a light when it has gone dim. A church exists to shine the light of Christ so that those outside the church can clearly see him no matter how deep in the darkness that they are. So there is no excuse not to address immorality within the church that dims the light of Christ. So Lighthouse Bible Church, let us shine the light by pursuing unity and holiness in Christ. Let us not dim the light by allowing sin and immorality to persist in the church when it does show up. Let's pray. Father God, these are important words for us to hear. And Father, I just pray that instead of having us look outward to be self-righteous in these things, that we would be humble and that we, we, would, we would look at ourselves any things that we may need to repent of in our own lives and within our own church. And when we see any things that are not consistent with the kind of lives that you call us to as a church body, I pray that we as a church would be faithful in doing what you want us to do. Calling a person to repentance, yes, but if that repentance doesn't come, also understand that the tr process of church discipline is what you call us to. Thank you, Father, for this instruction. And though it may be hard to hear, we know that it is true. And you will bless and you will be with those who are faithful to your calling. So we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I want to just take this opportunity to invite you to stand me as we prepare for our song of response. But also to also take this moment while you're standing just to consider encouragement and the exhortation that we received from just the book of First Corinthians, that indeed our calling is to be light. Um, and the way in which we are able to do that is not in our own ability, but by standing in Christ and really holding on to the goodness of his gospel um, so that we might rightly walk with him, and especially as one another, in light of the encouragement that we received, um, that our call to holiness is a call to um, live in the way in which God intended for us to be free from sin and also just walking with each other and encouraging each other to be free from sin as well so that we might indeed shine as bright lights. So let's take a moment to consider that. And then a few, after a, a short moment of silence, we'll sing our song of response. We'll glory be to Christ. <laughs>